Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Although there's huge amounts of work done around the history of the countryside, there's a history increasingly of environmentalism. I'm not sure we necessarily have worked out yet how to tell that story. Hello and welcome to another episode of On Jimmy's Farm with me, Jimmy Doherty. This is the podcast where we talk about environmental issues and try and give everyone a slice of the good life along the way. Now I'm just wandering through one of my wildflower meadows. This is a, a bit of land that we cultivated and turned over to nature. It was a heavily cropped field before. It was a commercial arable crop, heavily ploughed, not a lot of life going on. Uh, and so we put it down to natural grasses and wildflowers. And I've got to say, it is just a thing of beauty at the moment. It's all coming up and there's knapweed, there's oxide daisies, there's wild carrots, red, white clover, umpteen grasses here. What else we got in there? There's another bit of vetch, ribwort plantain. I mean, basically it's like a, a little mini rainforest. And when you look at it, you think, wow, actually, it must have been here for hundreds of years. It hasn't, it's only been here five years. And when you look at our countryside, most of it is man-made and cultivated and it's been protected by farming methods or protected by different organizations but everywhere you look along the british countryside it is a man-made environment and today's guest talks about that particular subject he's called matthew kelly and he's written a book about the women who have saved the English countryside. And it is a fascinating read. And we have a wonderful chat talking about four very distinct characters, these amazing women, and the passion they have for the British countryside and the work they did to protect it. So I hope you enjoy this chat and I will see you all back here amongst the wildflowers. Hello, Matthew Kelly. How are you doing? I'm good. Hello, Jimmy. Great to be here. Well, look, Matt, it's lovely to have you on because I'm really excited to talk to you about your amazing book, which is The Women Who Saved the English Countryside. It's quite a grandiose <laughs> title. It sounds like a, a group of superheroes. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it is a grandiose title. There's definitely a little bit of hyperbole in it. They're not quite superheroes, but they're pretty super in many ways, the four women that I look at. But one of the things I sort of I tackle in the book, I suppose, is their sense of the countryside that they wish to save and what they were saving it from. And that changes over time. So although there are almost probably everybody would nowadays say, well, of course, they didn't save the countryside. And I would agree with that. <laughs> At the same time, I think it's very interesting to think about, you know, what they thought it needed saving from and, and how that sort of changed in the meantime. And so there's a sense in which, you know, I suppose on their own terms, they didn't do a bad job, at least locally. But that's something we need to kind of appreciate historically rather than necessarily, you know, judging it according to what we think now. It's such an interesting thing because we, in the media at the moment, it's all about us needing to preserve biodiversity and preserve landscapes. And we talk about rewilding. But there's a lot to learn of what's happened in the past and what we gauged as important and what were the threats in our past history when it comes to our changing landscape. But the really interesting thing is that often within subjects like conservation, land restoration, or just in general science, 
In history, it's always been told through the male role. The great expeditions were men, you know, the scientists were men, and the women were there, but often were not given their spot in the limelight. And I think of like things like the discovery of DNA with Watson and Crick. But Rosalind Franklin, who did just as much work, was hardly ever noticed or even spoken about. The way you tell the story of protection of the English countryside is through the women's story, which I think is really important. Well, I mean, yeah, I agree. And I suppose on the one hand, as you say, the fact that men tend to be overrepresented in in these stories. And I was struck a couple of years ago when I was sort of getting started thinking about the book. There was a big conference uh, but and had a big kind of plenary session at the end. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but there was something like eight speakers on this plenary panel and they were all men, you know, either wearing suits or lumberjack shirts, um, depending on, you know, where they sat in the kind of conservation spectrum. And I thought, you know, where are the women? And, uh, you know, and we know there are loads of women active in, in conservation at the moment, or at least anyone who's engaged in these sorts of issues on Twitter and so on. We'll see lots and lots of important voices of, of one sort or another. And the other thing is that I've written this book, this history of modern Dartmoor. And one of the protagonists in that book, this was a book that was looking at Dartmoor since the 18th century. And, and one of the protagonists in the kind of latter, if you like, 50 years that the book was looking at was somebody called Sylvia Sayer, who was the um, chair of the Dartmoor Preservation Association. And she's one of the subjects in this book, The Woman Who Saved the English Countryside. And she was a fantastically effective lobbyist, I suppose, proponent of a sort of post-war pressure group politics. And to say that no one knows who she is today wouldn't be true because she's influenced a number of kind of current activists and, and her memory on in and around Dartmoor is mixed. But her, you know, the role that she played historically, you know, has been overlooked. I think the other thing more generally is that although there's huge amounts of work done around the history of the countryside, the history of, you know, and I suppose the history increasingly of environmentalism. And I think all of all four practiced a form of environmentalism. But again, it's an environmentalism of their time, not necessarily ours. I'm not sure we necessarily have worked out yet how to tell that story. And the book, the core of the book really is sort of from 1870 to 1970. And as we now know, thinking about these things historically, historical narratives aren't there, out there, looking for us to find them as though they're there in some kind of pure form. But they're things that we have to construct using evidence, deploying narrative devices, and so on and so forth. So I thought, well, here's one way of trying to construct that story by looking at, in a sense, the successive activities of these particular women. And there are lots of other ways of constructing, you know, that story. But if my book is an early-ish attempt to sort of try to pull together that hundred-year story, if you like, then, you know, why not have a crack at it from the point of view of before women rather than, you know, for men or the sort of formal history of institutions and so on. That was sort of my sort of starting thoughts for this. But in the periods that these women were very active and what they were trying to achieve, they would have come up against quite a lot of opposition mm -hmm. in a lot of their beliefs. But also being women as well would have been seen as almost, in some instances, a bit of a slight to say, well, you know, who are you to tell me what needs to be done? But So they would really have had to be tenacious characters, you know, and to be able to really push home their beliefs and, and get things done. I mean, absolutely. And they are all really, really strong characters. And one of the things I sort of grappled with in the book was how to talk about women who fulfilled these sort of exceptional roles and in a sense not to fall back on cliché when discussing them. So I take a sort of rather kind of, I think I, I was quite strict with myself in terms of how I described them. I mean, whether I succeed or not in a sense of, you know, using gendered language or imposing kind of cliched ways of thinking about prominent women in this period is not for me to judge ultimately if that's for the reader but I was very conscious of trying to sort of obviously make sense of them on their own terms and not falling back on slightly you know time-worn cliches about doughty blue stockings and whatnot. Octavia Hill is really interesting because she does in a sense help establish a new form of activism not uniquely there's a large group of you know of sort of fairly prominent if you like voluntarist or philanthropic women active in the late 19th century so not all of this in a sense can be attributed to Hill but there's a really complicated debate that historians have, have discussed extensively about what constitutes 
women's correct, if you like, roles in this period. And, you know, many people have probably come across the concept of, you know, separate spheres. There's an area of work, a sphere of work for men, which is largely public, and a sphere of work for women that's largely domestic. Now, that ideal is one that has been critiqued by lots and lots of historians. And we know that in practice, it didn't really work like that. But nonetheless, the way people talked about men's and women's roles in this period did tend to sort of adhere to that ideal. And Octavia Hill was really effective at arguing that the work that she advocated for women, which was both on slum housing projects and also providing open or green space for people in towns and cities, and initially for her, her principal concern is London, was in presenting it as women's work, as in a sense domestic, as part of a kind of nurturing maternal role, whereby, you know, through exposure to open space and green space, parks and so on, that people can become sort of happier, more well-rounded, you know, human beings. This is a way in which she's able to articulate this stuff as part of a broader nurturing role, which in that sense then doesn't challenge certain kinds of gender stereotypes or gendered norms, if you like, of the time. At the same time, though, she's incredibly vigorous and, you know, at times a really quite high-profile public figure. And by the turn of the 20th century, she is used to talking to people in government, in prominent public positions, her voice, you know, being heard. So she's sort of also emblematic of that gradual process whereby women sort of increasingly came into public life in the late 19th century in Britain. She's exciting in that regard. And the work she did, I mean, she's one of the founders of the National Trust, which is remarkable because the National Trust is so familiar to all of us. I'm a member of the National Trust. And the work of Octavia Hill it was instrumental in, in creating that. Absolutely. I mean, I think I'm right saying the National Trust is still Britain's largest membership organisation. And the joke always is, is that, that, you know, the Brits love a bargain. <laughs> and for your few pounds a month, you have access to an extraordinary range of places. And yes, yeah, she plays an absolutely central role in its establishment. And the thing that's really important about Octavia Hill's conception of the trust and the people that she worked with early on is it was primarily concerned with land not with house property, because we tend to, sometimes, I think, in the public eye now, we tend to associate it with, you know, big stately homes, country mansions. Exactly. And so on. And Hill, no, what Hill, it, this was about access to the countryside and about protecting particularly, as she saw it, special places from development. And she's acutely conscious of kind of suburbanising pressures. In a sense, her whole political life is about the fact that the late 19th century sees this very, very rapid expansion of towns and cities. And towns of cities, of course, what does that see? This sees the building over of fields and, you know, woodland. And there's no question that lots of landowners made a killing, you know, know, selling their land Mm, to developers um, and so on. And, And Hill was really conscious of that gradual kind of closing off of green space. So on the one hand, there's an expansion of the if you like, the urban footprint. And she felt it was desperately to compensate for that by protecting green space. And on the other hand, there's just simply the fact that you have, a, you know, in this period of kind of prosperity, you have an increasing number of people, I suppose, in the kind of growing middle class, who are able to buy up, you know, parcels of land on the edges of towns and cities and sometimes beyond to build new private homes on. This is facilitated, of course, by the expansion of the railways. I love the idea that today we see it as quite a modern thing as uh, preserving landscapes, you know, restricting urbanisation, protecting our green spaces, reconnecting with green spaces for our mental health. All see it as quite a modern thing, but actually it's not that, you know, people like Octavia Hill was doing it years and years ago, just, you know, when you've got the industrial revolution happening and everything was about growth, you know, industrialised, industrialised, and she was doing it then. I mean, absolutely. It's so striking when you read her essays, which are still very readable today, and they're easily accessible. You can easily find them online, and I talk about them in some detail in the book. But the way she talks about health and happiness absolutely chimes with contemporary ideas, you know, green prescribing, all of that sort of stuff. The idea that access to the countryside, going for walks and green spaces is good for mental health. Octavia Hill is arguing very, very similar things. Her language might be slightly different, but I think we immediately recognise what she's talking about when we read those sort of like canonical essays that she writes in the kind of 1870s and 1880s, 1890s. 
is instantly recognisable to us today. And I think that's one of the things that makes us sort of so sort of, you know, remarkable. And I think the other thing is that, and I think this applies to the four women that I look at, they can be snobbish and they can express attitudes that we might not find particularly congenial today. But on the whole, I don't think they can be cast as kind of reactionary or backward looking, because in a sense, I think they're meeting modernity, if you like, with a kind of counter-modernity, and that's a modernity about the rights of citizens, which in a sense is you know, very much a kind of modern political idea. And you know, when we're thinking about the development of sort of citizens' rights, you know, in the modern period and you know, the right to vote and the whole sort of human rights agenda and so on, what you see across these, the four women I look at from the 1870s to the 1970s, is this kind of articulation of this idea that there is a right that we all have that has to be has to be protected and the means to protect it have to be found. So that in that sense, I sort of see them as quintessentially modern rather than in a sense, you know, sort of reactionary or backward looking and trying to prevent, they're not trying to prevent development. They're not trying to prevent, you know, what we might very loosely call modernization. They're trying to think about how we can, in a sense, balance a range of interests so that everybody can be basically happy one way or another. Thank goodness it did. So Octavia Hill, one of the founders of the National Trust, and then you move on, Beatrix Potter. And we all think of Beatrix Potter and the tales of Peter Rabbit. But do you think people really understand the work that she did in the Lake District? And she brought up lots and lots of farms, didn't she? she but she wasn't from that area at all. She was from London, wasn't she? Yes, she was. But she had a kind of complicated family background that was actually largely an industrial family background. There were, there were connections to the Lake District and she holidayed you know, as a child with her sort of slightly overbearing parents. She holidayed yeah. in the Lake District from quite a young age. So she grew up very f- familiar with it. So when she, in a sense, when she establishes herself in the Lake District as a sort of, as an independent, you know, property-owning adult in her 30s. She's fulfilling a sort of set of, or following through on a set of kind of family connections. But at the same time, of course, she is also part of that great, you know, enthusiasm that very large people by this point in time have for the Lake District, which is easily the most celebrated, I would say, English, if not British, landscape. And, you know, we can trace that back to Wordsworth and so on, and, and that, that kind of celebration of the beauty of the Lake District that in many ways, you know, pertains um, today in terms of its cultural prominence. But yeah, Beatrix Potter brings to the Lake District an inherited fortune, and then, of course, a fortune earned by her genius as the author of the Peter Rabbit books. Um, so I think people are probably quite familiar with her, her association with the Lake District, but whether or not they know the key role that she played in basically enabling National Trust to acquire some of its, if you like, if its foundational territories um, in the Lake District, I'm not so sure. And uh, just very, very briefly, she buys her first farm in the early 1900s that's very much a private transaction it's for her it's a fulfillment of a long you know ambition and you know her life is quite complicated but she eventually is married and is able to able to settle there where it gets really interesting in terms of the sort of potter's contribution towards the trust and if you like landscape preservation agendas is that she buys two further really important properties in the 1920s one is Troutbeck Park Farm which is one of the Lake District's largest enclosed farms. It's essentially a big valley, and it's a, it's a sheep farm. And she buys that in 1923 with the intention of eventually bequeathing it to the National Trust. And then in 1929, not uncommon at the time, a big estate comes on the market, the Monk Coniston Estate, and the National Trust is really keen to get its hands on it. But basically, it doesn't have the cash. And Potter basically strikes a deal with the National Trust whereby she'll buy it on their behalf. She will manage the whole estate, but she will retain into the 30s the ownership of the farms and the trust will buy from her the fells, the the common land. But again, the intention is, is that she will give the whole thing on her death to the National Trust, which she duly does. So all the property that she accumulates in the Lake District 
you know, is driven by this really interesting combination of kind of a, her sort of private wishes and desires, what she wants to do with her fortune. But also, all the time, there is this intention to give it in, give it to the trust. And she believes in a really quite fundamental way in the trust's mission. Which is really admirable to do, to put all your wealth into that, to preserve something basically for the nation. But what was the attitude of the local communities and the farmers around? Because you've got basically in those days, you know, this very wealthy author turning up and buying up quite a lot of the farms and the land. So her local reputation is, is sort of really interesting. So locally, she marries a local solicitor, William Helis, and she's known locally as Mrs. Helis. I mean, you know, as of course, you know, married woman of the time she would expect to be known. So local people didn't necessarily connect Mrs. Helis to Beatrix Potter. Some obviously knew who she was. But for others, she was, you know, if you like, an income of farmer. And the question of whether or not the buying up of the farms would have been seen somehow, you know, as a kind of hostile takeover, the Elon Musk of the time, is interesting. So the couple of farms that she buys before the First World War, you know, in that sense, she's, you know, she's a new entry, if you like, into farming. Not especially significant, but it becomes clear quite quickly when she's at, you know, stock markets and so on, particularly buying sheep by Herdricks, which was a great passion, that actually this particular new entry has quite a lot of cash and is able to buy really good quality sheep and so on. So that doesn't go unnoticed. And similarly, she's able to employ the people she wants because she does pay over the odds for them. So that places her in a privileged position and nobody could claim that even in the sense when she's a small farmer, that she's like every other small farmer, that's clearly not the case. There are great sort of reserves of cash at her disposal that allows her to farm the way that she wants to. And I suppose in terms of the acquisition of Troutbeck, again, in a sense of perfectly, you know, the farm comes onto the market and she buys it, but she's very proactive as a manager. So rather than just buying the farm and allowing the tenants to stay in place, because it was a tenanted farm, not, if you like, an owner-occupied farm. She basically more or less turfs them out because she thinks they're not very good farmers and they're sort of untidy and lazy and they've let the place go to rack and ruin. And she takes it on basically as her sort of personal mission. And she loved Troutbeck and it's an extraordinary place. And you can obviously visit it today. It's National Trust land. You can walk freely through it. It's an extraordinarily, in a sense, mysterious valley in the Lake District. And then when she bought Mont Coniston, again, yes, she bought all those farms, but they're tenanted farms. And by the standards of the day, there wasn't much expectation that the tenants would be in a position to buy out their landlords. So I suppose that the question is whether or not she is a benign or harsh landlord, rather than the fact of being a landlord. And so I don't think she has a bad reputation as a landlord, but she's certainly, in a sense, you know, a new entrant in terms of the world of the Lake District landlord. But I think there's a sort of broader, you know, the English countryside looks like this sort of fixed, unchanging changing thing in some respects, but there's always a sort of lively market. And, and there are always waves, in a sense, of people who've made their money in other ways, buying in pursuing that sort of, you know, the ideal, I suppose, of the landlord of a big estate. And that happens in waves. And of course, one of the things that's remarkable about Beatrix Potter is that in a sense, she's part of that wave. She gets rich, she buys land, but then she gives it to the National Trust rather than selling it on in, in due course. And I think people coming in, if they've got available cash to help preserve and keep things going, it's really important. I can imagine there would have been the other sheep breeders of the Herdwick sort of saying, well, you know, it's all right for her. She's got loads of money. We've been breeding them over generations. But it's her ability to preserve something like the Herdwick sheep or maintain the farms in their original forms. It's just so important because farming is fluid and things change a lot. But when they change drastically, we do tend to lose so much of our farming heritage and our landscapes not that you can preserve them in a bottle forever but it's quite important that we do for a certain percentage for next generations one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You know, she certainly thought in those terms. And this is a time, isn't it, when, you know, agriculture in the 1930s is struggling. You know, there's effectively an agricultural depression in that period. So I think if you're a tenant farmer, holding a potter tenancy was probably not a bad thing. And there's no doubt that at this time that is generally seen as a period of kind of decay in agriculture, whereby, you know, farms are struggling to stay afloat. So unsurprisingly, the farms are not looked after to the same degree that they might usually mm. you know be and there's a sense in large parts of rural england in the 1930s of, of creeping dereliction because of the intense kind of economic pressures that farmers are under there is no doubt that Beatrice potter is what we would call an improving landlord she's investing in her farms and in that sense she's sort of slightly bucking the economic trends it's quite hard to see that as a negative you're mentioning of, of herdwicks is really important because but she's also trying to maintain a particular way of farming the lake district you know which is through grazing herdwicks on the basis of common rights but i don't want to romanticize that side of her too much i think she's quite hard no no she's quite hard-headed and i think in some ways she's a rather demanding landlord she certainly didn't let her tenants just sort of quietly do their own thing and get on with it yeah and the other thing is that of her properties her favorite was Troutbeck and you know Troutbeck is an enclosed farm on a large scale where she could do what she wanted to do she didn't have to come to terms with the rights of commoners and she's entirely explicit in her private letters that she finds dealing with the tenants and commoners you know I suppose quite hard work was it ever thus, I guess? So you've got Octavia Hill and you've got Beatrix Potter. Who's next on the dream team? So on the dream team, now we're going into much less familiar territory. I think even for, even if you like, for specialists, next is Pauline Dower. And Pauline Dower was the most prominent and longest serving woman on the National Parks Commission. And that was the commission established by the Attlee government in 1949 to designate national parks. And so, whereas with Hill and with Potter, even though working through the National Trust, we're dealing with people essentially working through sort of private means, whether it's public donations or, in Potter's case, her individual wealth. With Pauline Dower, we move into this sort of post-war, if you like, statist, the state responding to the same sort of agenda that Hill envisaged in the late 19th century, that Potter helps to kind of advance by the kind of 1930s, 1940s. It's widely considered that, you know, the state should be playing a more active role in trying to protect those, if you like, public interests that Hill and Potter had broadly pursued through private voluntary means. And now why is Pauline Dower on the National Parks Commission? Because there were absolutely, there were Vote some very prominent women in this politics. And as I say, she wasn't the only woman on the commission, but she was by and far away the most important woman on the commission. So she is, by background, a Trevilian. She's, well, she's the niece of um, G.M. Trevilian, the great historian, sort of Whig historian of early 20th century Britain. And her father owns, inherits the Trevilian estate at Wallington in Northumberland, which he eventually gives to the National Trust, and is a Liberal and then Labour politician. So Dower is this sort of curious, well, she comes out of 
to put it crudely, this very posh but progressive tradition. So she's amongst the movers and shakers, basically, isn't she? She's absolutely among the movers and shakers, and particularly the movers and shakers of Labour politics in this period and all that we associate with the Attlee government. So one of the points I'd like to make is that it's no coincidence that the government that creates the National Health Service creates the national park system, or at least creates the institutions that goes on to create the national park system in the 1930s. It's part, sorry, 1950s. It's part of the same, if you like, social democratic turn that government takes after 1945. Dower's husband, John Dower, was a leading figure in kind of landscape preservation and public access campaigning in the 1930s, and a really impressive individual who, during the war, wrote a report now published in 1945, now known as the Dower Report, which basically provides the kind of framework for the national park system that, you know, we have in Britain and the UK. And um, But he tragically dies of tuberculosis in the late 40s. So in a sense, he sees, he's just about lives long enough to see his work bear fruit, you know, knowing that this legislation will be passed, there will be a national park system. And then his widow, Pauline, in sort of in her early 40s at this stage, is then invited onto, onto the commission and plays a really important role in it over the next 20 years. So her activity in terms of shaping the National Parks Commission has been integral. And without her work, I mean, what would the National Parks be like today? Well, she's part of a team. I mean, of, of, of mm. the four women I look at, you know, she, I suppose, is, is the one that you describe as the civil servant. And she, you know, she plays her role in a team. She doesn't have a particularly high public profile, but she's very active in her job. So it's hard to say, in a sense, what would have been different, you know, without her. But what we can see is the prominent role that she played at various points in time. And I think it's really striking. So the first national park that was designated was the Peak District National Park. And that's, as we know, in north central England, I suppose. And one of the reasons why the Peak District National Park was designated so quickly and was seen as urgent is because it's close, because of its proximity to the kind of industrial heartland of England, you know, Manchester, Sheffield, Leeds um, and so on and all the smaller industrial towns around it and so it was incredibly important as if you like the breathing space the lungs of northern industrial England and many people of course will know that that Kinder Scout is in the Peak District and you know there's the famous trespass in 1932 to sort of try against attempt by landlords to prevent people from accessing it and and you know the Peak District had always been, been associated with, you know, working class hikers, working class access to upland landscapes and so on. Anyway, so when the big public inquiry takes place, 1950, in which, in a sense, the, the proposed boundary has been published and loads of people objected, local businesses, local farmers, local councils and so on and so forth. And so the minister calls a public inquiry and it's Pauline Dower represent the National Parks Commission on that public inquiry. So the first time the National Parks Commission, in a sense, has to go public. They choose Pauline Dower to present their argument, and she's really good at it. <laughs> it's so important, though, isn't mm. it? Because you set precedent in terms of what parks are going to be set out in the future and and the roles they're going to play. And there's always conflict within national parks between if you're a farm, for example, if you farm within the national park or if you're outside, there's certain things and all the rest of it. But all those rules would have been set out fairly early on and then would have been a blueprint for every other national park. And I think it's, it's so important. I mean... Uh, People like Pauline Dower, they, I mean, the umpteen field trips I've had to the Peak District and I lived in Coventry and we always used to go to the Peak District to sort of get out of Coventry and away from Birmingham and all the rest of it. It was so important, but it's incredible that they put her as the mouthpiece when it first went public in terms of, you know, going against committee, what, what's going to happen. Yeah, what you said about, for example, you know, the blueprint. I think that's right. I think, you know, the successful designation of the Peak District National Park establishes in the public's mind including among people who weren't very keen on the idea that this was going to happen. And, you know, had to accept it, had to come to terms with it, objecting to, you know, every aspect of it just simply wasn't going to bear fruit. I mean, having said all of that, I think it is important to recognise that when Dower is presenting her case at the inquiry, she's very careful not to overplay the significance of designation. She doesn't want to scare people off. And in that sense, she's very diplomatic. You know, that takes 
some kind of political mouth and skill. I was going to say, you've got to be a peacemaker, haven't you? Because you've got these different bodies and different parties with different views, and you've got to find some middle ground that's going to suit everyone. And that isn't easy at all, particularly when you're talking about something that hasn't really happened before. Like, oh, yeah, the general public is going to walk all over this land. And if you're a farmer or a landowner in that period, you'd be like, well, hang on a minute, this can't be happening. So to bring your argument across and, and settle it in a way that is then the blueprint for future national parks is incredible. So Paul Endower, incredible figure. Yeah. And then who's next? So the last one is the person I think I mentioned at the beginning, and that's Sylvia Sayer, who was the long-term chair of the Dartmoor Preservation Association, which she only retires from in the early 70s. And so she provides us, in a sense, you know, she's in a sense on the other side of the argument to Dower, or at least she's absolutely committed to the national park ideal, but she's also one of the fiercest critics of its implementation in practice. And Sayer, basically, her very simple way of expressing her view is that she thinks that the park authorities aren't strong enough. And so she basically does battle with the range of usually public rather than private, you know, interests that she sees as challenging the national park ideal. So as chair of the Dartmoor Preservation Association, an association established in the late 19th century that she plays a central role in reviving after the Second World War. As chair of that association, she wages a series of, if you like, I mean, war is too strong a word, but you know, a series of wars against <laughs> against what were called at the time water undertakers. In other words, local water authorities. And this is before you had the big regional water authorities. So in the case of Dartmoor, this is before the creation of Southwest Water. And they said you've got a number of different water authorities in Devon, all of which look to Dartmoor to build reservoirs to meet the new consumer needs of the post-war period. So she does battle against reservoirs and she helps defeat one big reservoir proposal but fails in another. She does battle with the Forestry Commission and there she's pretty successful. The Forestry Commission is established in 1919. Its its job is to create a timber reserve. It's to make Britain less dependent on timber imports, particularly at times of, you know, national emergency. You know, and you go to, you see Forestry Commission plantations you know today think what's what's it for when are they used when are they felled and all of that stuff and sure there is a process where a rotation and the trees are chopped down and so on and they're used for various commercial applications but they're also there as a reserve should that emergency arise there's lots of timber available but Saya loathes forestry commission plantations she loathes conifers and uplands and that's quite a common view among kind of national park enthusiasts But what particularly enraged her was the fact that the system of subsidies and so on up in the 1950s and 60s would allow landowners to clear fell deciduous woodland, ancient woodland, and then replace it with conifers. And it's hard not to see that as environmentally very destructive. And that happens in the kind of river valleys and Dartmoor, and she fights those tooth and nail. But I think, in a way, the battle that shapes her politics almost from beginning to end is that she wages against the Ministry of (laughs) Defence. Wow. So she took on the army. She took on the Ministry of Defence. That's incredible. The Ministry of Defence establishes a foothold on Dartmoor in the late 19th century. But you know, unsurprisingly, during the Second World War, that expands very significantly. The same happens in Northumberland, which Pauline Dower is very exercised about. And it's a story in other parts of the UK. So one of the battles that occur around landscape in the post-war period is whether or not, in a sense, you can push them back. You can push the MOD back into its box, its pre-war box, if you like. It's really hard. And it's really hard because, I don't know, maybe in popular perceptions, the war comes to an end in 1945, and then this is a period of peace, when the reality is, is that Britain is fighting a string of wars of colonial retention in the 1950s and the 1960s. And there is never really a period when Britain is not in a sense, at war one way or another. And then there's also the wider context of the Cold War. And there's technological changes. So simply the fact that field artillery has a longer range means you need larger training areas. And and so there's this sort of constant sort of expansionist pressure that she grapples with. And at the same time, Pauline Dower is doing the same up in Northumberland. And it's sometimes the case that, you know, a victory down in Dartmoor means a defeat in Northumberland. 
I suppose the irony in some ways, if she's trying to push the MOD back in terms of, you know, not having so much land to have their military training and exercises on, the irony is now the MOD is one of the biggest conservationists, aren't they, in terms of, although they blow it up quite a lot and drive tanks over it, but apart from that, it's left as it is, isn't it? It's a really striking paradox, isn't it? I mean, I don't, this is something that the MOD sort of cottons onto actually quite early, you know, from the 1970s, they're actually saying, look, because we use this land, it's not farmed as intensively. Public access is inhibited or prohibited, depending on where we're on where we're talking about. So actually, there's space here for nature to thrive. And it's interesting, you know, the Nature Conservancy Council which was a relatively low-profile kind of advisory council in this period of time, often did not support, for example, the kinds of arguments that Sayer was making. And they would basically say the harm caused to the landscape by shelling and stuff was superficial. It recovers from it really quickly. And actually, there isn't much ecological harm caused by training grounds. Now, it harms access. It has an effect on access. It has an effect on agriculture. But they took the line, not a great deal of ecological harm was done. Now, you know, ecologists might look at the arguments made in the 1970 and question some of those now. But at least at the time, this was sort of quite a plausible argument. And there's a historian called Mariana Dudley, who's done quite a lot of work on these sort of military spaces and thinking about whether or not this is an exercise in greenwashing or in fact actually is a set of really quite plausible claims. So yeah, I think it's it's really interesting and, you know, quite difficult and certainly counterintuitive, yeah. isn't it? Counterintuitive idea. Completely. And then what I want to ask you next, the reasons why these ladies were trying to protect the English countryside, are they different threats than today? And they were protecting for different reasons why we want to protect the environment today. I think so. The four women I look at were not ecologists. I think they had a good understanding of flora and fauna. You know, they knew their patch, certainly. But their view onto the landscape was, was in a sense, about culture, and it was about aesthetics, Mm. and it was about access, varying degrees one to the other. And it wasn't particularly ecological. And I think one of the big changes that's happened, let's say since Sayer's retirement in the early 1970s, and it's brewing at the time, is the fact that we now understand that you know, among the greatest threats to the natural environment is agricultural intensification. And, you know, in, in the politics at the times is all about the grubbing up of hedgerows, turning small fields into large fields, making extensive use of chemical fertilisers and pesticides and all that stuff. You know, farming in a way that unquestionably diminishes biodiversity. And, and you know, and we know that there's a really, really tense kind of politics around that at the moment. And, you know, one of the ironies in Britain of course, is our most fertile landscapes are also the ones that are most intensively farmed for, in a sense, obvious reasons. And there's an old argument in the sense that we invest too much, if you like, capital in uplands, which are relatively marginal agriculturally, naturally, in a sense, have lower levels of biodiversity and not enough in what's happening in those places, which in a sense we just think are that's, in a sense, our breadbasket, and this is how it's going to be used. So, I mean, there's obviously a whole set of wider environmental issues around, you know, global warming and CO2 levels and so on and so forth, of which farming is a part, but it's only one part, as, you know, basically all aspects of contemporary life are contributing towards that that problem. But specifically, I think what really shifts, in a sense, after the fall is that growing sense that farming itself is the problem rather than farmers creating, in a sense, the charismatic landscapes that the four women celebrated. Now, this isn't me saying that, you know, all farmers are bad. and There's a whole set of difficult, complicated reasons as to why farming is the way that it is. And the role that state subsidy plays in it is crucial, as is the role that cheap food policy does. Absolutely. And I think that's going to be born out of how farmers get paid in the future. You know, paid for increasing biodiversity rather than producing food as productively as possible but it's interesting because with your book you can really see the importance these four women play as activists or as whatever in terms of preserving what they think is important in the British countryside against threats that may not be too applicable today but who are the big movers and shakers do you think today when it comes to the environment who do you think is going to have that same effect 
on the British countryside as your Octavia Hill or, or Beatrix Potter? <laughs> that's a really good question. I feel slightly put on the spot by that one, but that's all right. So what you were saying about the new, if you like, the post-Brexit agricultural settlement, I think what's really interesting about that and what is in continuity with the four is, of course, is that it is treating farmed land as a form of public goods. And as you were saying, farmers will be paid, we at least think in the future, to a greater extent than in the past on the basis of them delivering certain environmental goals rather than on the basis of how much, you know, food they produce. And so there's definitely a line of continuity there in terms of the thinking of the four about how land, how the countryside is a public interest. So I think one of the things that has happened really in the last 50 years, of course, is that this is a different kind of politics. So for example, when that big agricultural bill was going through, there were highly professionalised environmental organisations that were part of the bill process and are in a sense integrated into these political debates. And then there are those that sort of sit outside of, of that, that I suppose are activists. And, and I'm a bit reluctant to say who I think are the great activists of our time, but I think that there are some really influential voices. I mean, it's very striking that in the last couple of years, and this is partly a reflection of lockdown, but not entirely, we're starting to talk about trespass again. And, you know, people like Nick Hayes and Guy Shrupshaw and so on are, are, in, are basically sort of trying to think about a kind of a form of activism that draws on the kinder scout trespass tradition that is, is about saying, you know, we've done the lobbying, we need to start asserting rights, but in ways which is respectful of what agriculture has to do that is takes care whilst at the same time exercising those rights. I think the other thing is just as important and probably more important actually than that, but absolutely overlaps with it. When we're thinking about, say, access to the countryside, is thinking about who has access and who feels comfortable exercising those rights. And one of the things I touch on at the end of the book is the way that things like the Black Lives Matter campaign is having an effect on these discussions. If you are a person of colour, how comfortable do you feel? How accepted do you feel in rural places? It's very easy for someone like myself, a white middle class, I hate to admit it, middle-aged man who has an OS map and a knapsack and walking boots to now I know to be marching around the countryside thinking, well, there are no barriers to entry. Anyone can do this. But there are very subtle barriers to entry. And it's really important that that discussion is taking place at the moment. The other discussion that's taking place, not as high profile, also uh, is the way in which so much of our sort of politics about access and so on is quite ableist and its images are, are often quite gendered. You know, it's often about big, hard to access open landscapes that you essentially have to be pretty fit and healthy to get to, to climb up to that great peak or whatever it happens um, to be. And if we really do think that access to the countryside brings about health and happiness, then we have to think about, well, how can we enable access to people who can't necessarily hike up Kinder Scout? So all of these things are now, if you like, the intersectional aspects of, of the wider politics of current society is also playing out in terms of the slightly narrower field of countryside politics. And maybe as a sort of closing point for me, we can go back to the fact Octavia Hill was really conscious of the needs of women, particularly women with young children. So local parks, places that were easy to get to, you know, by public transport on the train. Not everything is about great big hikes across big landscapes. That doesn't meet everybody's, you know, needs. And again, there's a way in which we say, you know, good old Octavia, she was onto this 150 years ago. Yeah. Well, exactly, way before. But I tell you what, it's, it's been fascinating for me is that you've told the story of these four women, the effect they had in, in preserving and saving the English countryside. But there's obviously lots more people involved in, in various aspects as well. But it does show you the importance of just individuals sticking their neck above the parapet to make changes, often against great sort of conflict with other parties or, or different ideas. But it's just as important today that it's ever been, has it really? And how we view our countryside, protect it, and how we use it in the future. Activism and people standing up and saying what they believe is absolutely vital. I mean, I absolutely agree with that. And the only thing I would add to it also that I think the four exemplify is that they also really invested in understanding 
the complex issue, like context in which they worked, whether it was, you know, if you like the legal, particularly, I suppose, the legal side of things. I mean, in a sense at the moment, there's always that danger that having a strong opinion on Twitter (laughs) is all the activists we need to be. Whereas, you know, all four of these women, they did committee work. They researched, they put together their cases Mm. in a way that wasn't just oppositional, but was predicated, I suppose, on the existing kind of legal, you know, frameworks and so on. So it's about, they understood that you can be at once outside and inside the system. And just shouting from the margins, frankly, doesn't tend to get much done. And activism requires a lot of graft, a lot of sort of slightly dreary work in in committees organizing and all of that stuff and i think all four of them one way or another did the hard work of activism as well as if you like the slightly more fun but as you say with some jeopardy sort of public stuff but yeah they were there was far more to them yeah. than having strong opinions and and i think that is one of the things that i take from them yeah they got out there and they did it, didn't they? That's the difference when, you know, you talk the talk, but they walked the walk as well, didn't they? I, th- I think they did. And I think walking that walk wasn't always massively exciting, but it was really important. <laughs> Listen, Matt, it's been absolutely fantastic. I could talk to you forever, but it's been wonderful. And I think the story of these four women, so inspirational. And I, I love the book. It's just wonderful. The-, the women who saved the English countryside. Like I say, they are my superheroes. Thanks, Jimmy. Really enjoyed talking to you about it. Thank you. There we go. That was the lovely Matthew Kelly. What an incredible story he tells about these four amazing women and the work that they carried out in a time that, you know, women's voices weren't really heard. And if it wasn't for them, so much of our countryside would have disappeared. And I think, you know, it's testament to their work, but also it stands as inspiration for others to do the same thing in the future. Now, listen, if you've enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, leave comments wherever you find your podcast, because it really does help new listeners find us. So, guys, I'll see you all back at the farm for another episode of On Jimmy's Farm. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.